Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the High Schooler's Guide to Psychology. It's still Christmas Eve. Um, I'm your host, Ava, and today I'm joined by not one, not three, but two co-hosts. Please introduce yourself. Uh, I think you, if you watch all the episodes, you definitely know me, and I'm, I'm back and better than ever. <laughs> What's your name, Mikolas? Speak up. Oh, uh, Mick. Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And the other lesser co-host. Hey! <laughs> I, if anything, I'm, I'm the better co-host since I'm here all the time for all Your the- name, co-host. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm joined by Nicholas. A.K.A. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>, Kate. <laughs> you know her. You may or may not love her. Hi. Who am I to say? And today, what are we talking about, ladies and Mick? Does anybody know? Psychological warfare. False. Asylums. Correct. We are talking about asylums and the history of mental health, which basically spiraled into just asylums. Um, Mouse is also here. She will not be talking to you guys as she does not have human vocal cords nor any understanding of the English language. Yes, she does, and she uses them to great effect at the early hours of the morning. She's taking a nap right there. She is. She's napping. She's very cute. She's tucked um, in with her little blanket. So you might notice a bit of a disjoint between the first half and the second half of this episode, and that is because we are not filming them all in one go as we usually do, but we're recording the first half and then taking a break for golden hour because Kate wants to do photography. Um, she's doing photography in college next year, um, and then we are coming back and filming the second half. So that is why. Um, does anybody have any major life updates to get out of the way before we begin? Oh, well, I'm back and better than ever. <laughs> Thank you, Mickey. I'm still just chilling. Yeah, we um, we recorded episode Rapids. eight right before this in Grand Cedar. <laughs> um, so if you want a more cohesive update of our lives, uh, listen to the intro of that again. It's the exact same as we were um, about two hours ago. But Mick, anything anything new with you? No. It's been a whole year. How is seventh grade treating you? Like, I don't know how seventh grade treats people. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we're gonna begin. Um, so we're starting with asylums. Ooh, asylums. Yeah. So uh, most mentally ill people in the past were treated the same as physically ill people. They saw them both as just like you know illnesses, which they are but they treated them the same. And that is to say they stayed at home with their families and received treatment there. So mental illness was seen as a domestic problem and it wasn't really talked about. And even today, there's still a large stigma around mental illness. However, some people were considered too dangerous to be around civilians, which is where mental asylums come into play. So even though mental illness was treated at the home, treated as a domestic problem, they still, there were still some people who were not like, I don't know, safe enough to be around. I'm not sure if that's like the appropriate terminology, but these people were institutionalized in mental asylums. Um, Mental hospitals started as private wards, either in public hospitals 
which are also called almshouses or private hospitals. Um, in fact, a lot of private hospitals relied on the funds paid from wealthy people with mentally ill family members in order to treat physically ill people. Sounds like Catholic school. What? How they rely on people to pay. Or is that just private institutions in that's general? Well, well it's, that's private institutions in general. <laughs> okay. It's like a, a business needs business to well, stay the afloat. Only, um, the only real experience I have with uh, private institutions is school. So. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, pu- so private hospitals, they cared for physically ill people, but most of their money came from wealthy people trying to, you know, remove the mentally ill people from their family. Um, a lot of times to avoid the shame of having someone like that in your family. And they would like, right. do you know, like the, the Kennedys, I think, or the Roosevelt's, I think it was the Kennedys. They had a Probably sister, the Kennedys. they had a sister, um, who was like not mentally well and they literally pretended she didn't exist. Like they institutionalized her and then like literally like struck her from the family like lineup like serious black yeah (laughs) exactly but for different reasons um and she got a lobotomy that was botched and yeah that was the kennedys yeah that was so yeah they would institutionalize their family members and the hospitals relied on these funds in order to treat poor people who could not pay to be treated um in 1808 a country's asylum act was passed and this called for the creation of asylums to help britain care for the pauper lunatics and this this is in quotation marks, this is, i.e. mentally ill people who are too poor to pay for treatment. So the wealthy mentally ill people were put in private hospitals, and then the the mentally ill people who could not pay were, um, they, there was this act created to create um, public asylums for them. However, due to the abuses at such institutions, um, as these public mental asylums, um, Parliamentary committees were established to investigate and regulate such asylums, and one such public hospital was Bedlam Asylum. Does that name ring a bell to either of you? Oh, Bedlam. Bedlam. Not at all. It sounds like the Bell Dame from Coraline. Yes, but Mick, are you sure it doesn't? Yeah, I think like it should, and now I'm stressing out. Because um, in DC's Batman, there's a, um, a prison, I think, called Bedlam, right? Yeah, but... I don't, I don't really watch that Batman. Fair enough. Just assumed you were a normal 12-year-old boy. You're 12, right? Yeah, I'm 12. Cool. Don't worry, Nick. We know your age. We were there when you were born. Not there. Not there. You guys are 24, right? Yeah. Fair enough. Um, And then in 1845, the Lunacy Act was passed, and this made the status of mentally ill people um, which made this as mentally ill people that they were patients who needed treatment. So it like put mentally ill people on the same level as like physically ill people in that they were like patients, which was a cool thing. Um, and then in the early 1800s, a new institution called the Asylum was born. Asylums used moral treatment to and promised to cure mental illness. Aren't asylums like kind of, aren't, aren't asylums kind of like the set for like every single horror movie? Yeah, we're actually going to talk about that and how using the asylum as a horror trip has contributed to the stigmatization of mental illness in, like, the modern day. But, yeah, they have been, and that's actually a big problem. Because, so. like, people when they go to the asylums and stuff, and you're going to be helped, they're like, oh, no, it's bad because of the movie. Yeah, it's, like, that's why a lot of people don't seek treatment, and it's because of these, like, abuses that went down in, like, old mental asylums, yeah. where, like, the people weren't properly trained, or everyone was, like, restrained and not actually helped, that like, there is the stigmatization. Like, the, like, the, like, 
stereotypical like room that's like full of like the walls and floor and ceiling is like all mattresses exactly water tanks where they boil and then freeze them exactly it's um yeah a lot of abuses went down and this became a horror trip because people found out about these abuses but because of the horror trope now people are too afraid to go to actual mental hospitals thinking it's the same as like 1800s mental hospitals but we're going to get into that later excellent segue for later thank you um is the segue like phrase come from segues like that you ride on um i feel like the segue that you ride on i feel like that name came from the word segue but i have no clue there's only one way to find out well actually there are probably multiple ways to find out but there's only one efficient way to find out i don't have my phone me either okay i guess mick will you take kate's phone (laughs) so we can google it no Okay, do I look enough like Kate? No, you do not. Okay, Hold Kate. it to Kate's face. Gosh, I'll do it myself. Well, Kate does that. So, <laughs> asylums used moral treatment. And moral treatment is the idea that mentally ill people could find their own way to being cured if they were treated with kindness in a way that appealed to parts of the mind that remained rational. That was just sneeze. That was so cute. She was just, I, I was giving her a belly rub and she was like, Aww. No, not like that. More like, I, I can't recreate the sound. It's a satisfied it. sigh. Just a sneeze, I'll say. Uh, the, the, the thing was named after the word. I knew it. I guess um, I was right. Update on the segue thing. I was correct, as we should have assumed from the beginning. We're yeah, moving on. You're always correct. That's kind of why you're annoying. I was about to say this is where I keep you around, but now I'm not so sure. That was a very backhanded compliment, Nick. I'm almost impressed. Moving on. So the moral treatment did away with restraints and isolation treatments that had been common previously for the most unpredictable mentally ill people. So instead of like restraining people and using like the water boiling technique that Kate was talking about, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, mentally ill people will find their own way to like sanity, I guess, if we treat them with kindness. So they like get, did away with all these abusive treatments. Um, they also recognized the autonomy of the institutionalized. For example, they told the treat, they, the people they were treating, they told their treatment dependent on their conduct. For example, good behavior was rewarded with prizes and bad behavior was punished. Uh oh. Like school. Oh. Is school a mental hospital? Um, no. It's kind of like a jail, to be honest. So, yeah, similar sort of like punish reward system that is applicable in most parts of society. Wait, do like asylums still exist? Because, like, because, like, can't you just get therapy now? Uh, mental hospitals still exist. Oh, I guess, yeah. If you're a danger Isn't to it yourself. It's, st- it's so-called being, like, institutionalized, but it's, like, different. Yeah, will we get into that? Um, I don't think we're getting into modern asylums. Okay, I guess that's not that interesting. Is it just normal? I mean, it might be interesting. I just didn't research it. Um, okay, y'all well, can let me know if you want an episode on modern, like, mental health treatments and asylums and stuff. Okay. Or I guess asylum is an antiquated word. Now we're getting into the Kirkbride plan. It's my favorite. Is that the bird-shaped thing? <laughs> um, most asylums are arranged according to the Kirkbride plan. So just a brief history on what exactly the Kirkbride plan is. Um, it's a way of designing mental asylums that was developed by Thomas Story. 
Kirkbride, Thomas Story Kirkbride. And they were constructed in the mid to late 19th century, which is the 1800s. Um, and they were built with in accordance with moral treatment. So this idea that you need to treat mentally ill people with kindness. Um, and the very first one was built with thanks to the efforts of Dorothea Dix, who I will mention later. We're going to do a little biography on Dorothea Dix. Don't worry. Um, and the asylums were long and narrow with the wings. They were typically... Um, there were typically eight, four on each side. I've shown you both a picture, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Well, well, I'll pull a picture for you up in a second, and I'm gonna put one on my Instagram at the at the HSG two psych on Instagram if you want to see a picture of the Kirkbride Asylum floor plan. And so it was wings, typically four on each side, so eight in total, and they were staggered, and this would allow sunlight and air through the whole asylum. Which the Kirk, which Kirkbride thought would aid in healing the mentally ill. Okay, so I'm going to show you a floor plan now. All right, so this is the Kirkbride plan, Mick. Do you sort of see how it is like staggered? Oh, so like the sunlight goes through into each of the parts. Yeah, so like every single room has like a window, and like sunlight and air and everything, and it like promotes like airflow, but it's still big. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I really like it. I've always said I want to live in a Kirkbride asylum. Like, how big were these, like, this room? No, definitely not this room, because this room could fit, like, three people or four, if it had to. It fits both Ava and I. And Mouse. Yeah, and I would mouse. say maybe, like, half the size of this room, but, like, different dimensions, like, floor space-wise. Yeah. Oh, I kind of see, so it would be, like, maybe a square. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. They weren't, like, cramped, but they weren't, like, huge, you know? <coughs> Sorry, guys, I'm dying. <laughs> Mick's not dying. For legal reasons, that's a joke. Yeah. Wait, yeah. <laughs> um, and the ceilings were often about 12 feet high, which is very tall. It's taller than our ceilings at home. Like, like, Almost twice as tall as our ceilings at home. Wait, what do you mean, like, twice as, like, what what area? What do you mean our ceiling's that tall? Like, think of the piano room yeah. and that ceiling. It's, like, twice that tall. So, it's just twice as tall as our father. Yeah. Think of our father's stacked, too. Wait, so isn't it kind of like the, like, it's kind of like one of those stereotypical jail cells that's, like, super down, and you, like, have, like, one, like, uh... Like, one window at the top. Well, obviously not like that, but, like, it has the dimensions of that. Um, maybe? I'm not really sure what you're picturing here. I need a transfer it from my brain to your brain, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Um, most of like, stereotypical stone prison cells, right, with, like, the bar window way up high. Yeah. I'm not sure if the windows were, like, way up high. No, but that's just what like, you're saying. Like, like, Oh, yeah, I guess. The center of the house was um, administration kitchens and public spaces, etc. So it like branches out from like administration all the way out to the most dangerous patients, and that's each of the mm -hmm. wings. And most asylums were built on at least a hundred acres of land, and the ground were often maintained by the patients themselves. So for context, the ranch where we are right now is a little over fifty acres. So think like twice of this, and then like this mansion building, but then there were like grounds everywhere. Okay. And the prisoners themselves, prisoners, oh my god, the patients 
were able to like get out and get some like fresh air and everything by maintaining these grounds without like going into um, public spaces. Wait, so like they had their like own little yards? No, no, no. They didn't have their own little yards. It was like one communal yard that was for all the patients and the yeah. administrators, but it was like they maintained it themselves and it wasn't like public property. Wait. So it was like just the patients. But like what? They like couldn't they like mix together and like the dangerous patients could like gun fights. I think they probably had like an organized schedule of who was allowed out when, but okay. I'm not sure. I feel. I feel like that. Was- I feel like they probably had like the not dangerous patients maintaining the grounds, and maybe the like more dangerous ones like going out with like a helper or something or like like a staff member whenever they were going outside. I'm not really, I can't really speak as to how the exact organization of the grounds was though. Okay. That's just like they maintained the grounds. Um, and then Dorothea Dix, who I mentioned earlier and we'll talk about later, ensured that nearly every state had an asylum designed with the Kirkbride plan, but such organizations soon became heavily criticized. So she wanted these to be like state institutions that were available to everyone in the country. Mm-hmm. But um, they soon were criticized, and most of the arguments were gen- were economic, as the asylums were funded by tax dollars. So they were saying that like they shouldn't have to pay to support these asylums, mm-hmm. which is a common argument that you still hear today about like public schools and other tax funded institutions, especially like libraries and stuff like that. Um, and then there was also the humanitarian reform during the Age of Enlightenment. And this is when people saw mental illness as a disorder that required compassion. If you'll remember me talking about moral treatment, this like mm-hmm. sort of came to arise during the humanitarian reform, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So like slowly improving. Uh, did we go? Did we get past like the stereotypical like? Yeah, we we we, we talked about that earlier. The stereotypical like, movie asylums, right? Yeah, we touched on it. I'm going to touch on it again later. Okay. Um, so eventually it became seen as something that could be cured after King George III, who suffered from a mental disorder and then went into remission. So because there was this like very public figure who suffered sort of like semi-publicly with his mental disorder and then was like cured, they started seeing it not as something that was like untreatable, but something that if like there was given like care, people could like recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moral treatment began under the humanitarian form, like I just said. And now we're going to talk about women in mental institutions. So some women would be institutionalized only for their opinions or actions. Yeah, so, I've heard that. Yeah, like women who were outspoken or didn't obey the societal norms would sometimes be institutionalized. Yeah, someone like that in season two from American Horror Story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know why I asked to, like, I watched American Horror Story. Uh, it was that one girl who cheated on her husband because he was being mean to her and they locked her up. Um, so, so back to women being institutionalized for their opinions or actions. Was that um, just women or, or was it, like, other, like, mi- like minorities in, like, 1500s too? I wrote women. It might be applicable to other minorities, but I don't want to, like, generalize if I don't have, yeah. like, the exact facts. So, so basically their husband, father, or brother, who, whichever man was in charge of them, um, could have women institutionalized with their reasoning that their strong opinions and unruly actions were clearly indicative of mental illness. In fact, Mary Wollenstonecraft, who you may know for her novel A Vindication of the Rights of Women, 
wrote another novel called Maria or the Wrongs of Women, which was po published posthumously, so after she died, about a woman who was locked up in an asylum after becoming an inconvenience to her husband. And Kate just mentioned another example from uh, season two of American Horror Story. Um, and women were most commonly admitted for small periods of time simply to rest and recover from the stress of their domestic lives. I would love a vacation from the stress of my life. Maybe not being locked up in a mental asylum for such a vacation, though. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I prefer the Bahamas. Yeah, it's like, fair enough. Just go on a beach somewhere, I don't know. Yeah. I don't like the beach, though. Actually, Bahamas is a little, a little, like, expensive, I don't know. Uh, I'd say maybe, oh, I'd say maybe something that's not the Bahamas. Fair enough. Um, women were also admitted to um, institutions to give birth to illegitimate children. Oh. So if y'all have ever read The Song of Achilles, which is one of my favorite books, there's a princess, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name, who gets pregnant when her marriage isn't known to the public. So it's like she is pregnant due to her husband, but it's like people don't know she's married. So she gets admitted um, or her dad sends her away to give birth in secret with this, without the servants and civilians gossiping. So it's sort of like that, like being sent away to avoid like the public shame of it all, you know? And then the women's wards were based on the Victorian ideals of femininity in the beginning. So although there are wards for women, they were based heavily on gendered stereotypes. So women weren't often allowed outside and there weren't a lot of opportunities for their entertainment. Their activities were largely indoors. Um, a lot of the women patients were put to work around the asylum in the needle room doing laundry or housekeeping. So doing like typical domestic chores, but for, for the hospital. So they were taking a break from their domestic lives by having a second domestic life somewhere else. Um, okay. I'd be so mad if she's like, you're going on a vacation to do someone's laundry. Yeah. yeah. I'd kind of be like, no, thank you. But it wasn't like running a whole household. It was like doing one specific task with a bunch of other people helping you. Mm -hmm. So I can see how it'd be like a lighter workload. But it was still like their jobs were very gendered. So like while the male patients might be allowed to work around in the gardens and go outside, women were sewing, doing laundry and like housekeeping and things like that. I would have to go to the Bahamas just to sew and do housekeeping. But you wouldn't have to make your man and you're in the Bahamas. Yeah, that's fair. We're talking about men in asylums now. That's cool. Yeah, we just finished mm -hmm. women, so now we're on to the second group. How different were they? Like, like were they like, com like if you were a man versus a woman, were they like completely different things? I think we're about to get into that. Okay. Um, so prior to World War I, men in asylums were often poor and unmarried because if they had been married, their wives would have been expected to look after them. So it would have been like a shame for the women, like shameful for the women to send them away. It's like, oh, you can't handle your husband, right? Yeah. But of course, it was totally common for married women to be in asylums. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make much sense. I'm taking it. It makes a lot of sense snuggle. if you know the, the time spirit. Period. Well, it makes sense from the time period, but just uh, literally, it doesn't make that much sense. Fair like, enough. Um, so after the war, many men were admitted for shell shock, which is the, the time period named for PTSD or was likely PTSD. 
Um, and the diagnosis of shell shock was actually very controversial, as many saw it as close to psychosis, which supposedly only affected women. So like this hysteria psychosis diagnosis, a lot of people are like, oh, that only affects women. Like um, but then the- What? Like colorblindness? What, what do you mean? <laughs> Can't, can't, can't men only be colorblind? Or is I think more men are colorblind than women, but I think women can be colorblind. Okay. But yeah, but now there was this shell shock thing, which was similar to psychosis, but was now impacting men. Um, there were less men in wards traditionally, and it was actually more common for men to escape than women, maybe because the men were allowed to go more outside, outside more. Um, men generally had the same schedule, but they worked in the kitchen and bakehouse as opposed to the needle room and laundry. And the rules were generally stricter on the men's side, actually. Um, but men were allowed to join more activities than women were, even though they had stricter rules. Um, they were allowed to have sports team, a hospital band, if they had a band at the hospital. Um, they were allowed to farm, um, upkeep of the grounds and gardens, like I was saying, so they could go outside more. Um, there were various workshops, and they even had engineering practices. Engineering. So, Mick, to answer your question, the differences were that women had less rules, and there were generally more of them. The men had stricter conditions, but more freedom in what they could do with their time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I don't know what comparison I was going to make. Kind of like, uh, in, you know how, like, uh, what would y'all prefer, like, based on these conditions? Would you prefer to have, like, less activities but more freedom or less freedom but more activities? I'd like more activities. I would also like more activities and to work in the bakehouse as opposed I to the laundry. I want to work in the bakehouse, but I like sewing, too. Fair enough. All right, so that's it for men and women in the asylums. Now we're going to talk about old and inhumane treatments. So these are arcane treatments, things that have been outdated. Um, And just as a little disclaimer, the earliest treatments were not actually treatments at all, but mainly an attempt to keep patients calm and occupied. And a lot of these treatments, I'm going to use the word treatment lightly because a lot of them didn't didn't actually cure anybody. So, So the earliest treatments were an attempt to keep patients calm and occupied, like I said. Um, And when they were not calm, they often were restrained for quote-unquote protection. So if you were not calm and sedated all the time, you were tied up. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to be tied up. Me neither. Um, So these restraints included, well, actually, do any of you know what sort of restraints might have been used? Want to take a gamble? Street jackets. Correct. And, like, maybe, like, they're, like... Oh, like, uh, they're putting rooms. N- not really. Kate, you mentioned another form earlier. Did I? Yeah. The bathtubs? Yeah. Where they, like, tie them down? Yeah, exactly. So, straight jackets and the bathtubs where they, they were called continual baths. I've never heard of those. What do they look like? They were they're, in, they're the- um, either American Horror Story or that show with the American Horror Story actresses that looks a lot like... American Horror Story. I don't Ratchet? Think I've yes. American that's Horror it. Story. But, um, so, continual bath is when a patient was put in a bathtub and then there was like a cloth over the top that, that was tied up. 
Oh. Have you seen that before? I think so. Like, isn't it, it feels like a horror movie trope. Yeah, so they were, like, kept, it's a continual bath, literally. Like, that was how they were restrained. Oh, I think I saw them, like, one of those things on the cover of a dystopian book before. Maybe. Um, so the restraints other than those two were, like, just a general handcuff restraint. Padded cells, Mick, actually, you were right. Um, they were kept in padded cells. Um, fingerless gloves um, and bed they restraints. They got to be fashionable? No, not not fingerless as in it was just, like, the palm part fingerless as in, like, it was, like, a mitten, but you couldn't, like, move uh, your fingers. I thought you meant, like, they're just, like, being tied down <laughs> with fashion statements. <laughs> you know, the weight of fashion is a heavy one. Uh-huh. I, I don't know what but I it's my burden to bear. Right, guys, will you ever be, like, really drugged up or be, like, tied up and restrained? That is an excellent question, Nick. I Probably just don't really know. drugged up. I feel like it'd be better for your mental health. Yeah, because if you're, if you're restrained, you're, you're just like, like tied up. You're like, oh no, I'm tied up. But if you're like really drugged up, you're like, whoa, the wall is smoothing. Show some know. colors. I've never done drugs, so I wouldn't the, know. I've also never done drugs. Episode 7, I've though. I've done a lot of drugs. Yeah, deals, you haven't, Nick. You're a 12-year-old boy. Episode 7 deals with altered states of consciousness, if y'all haven't listened to that yet and are interested in actually what the effects of drugs are should listen to that um and as you might expect the worst treatments were during the early days of the asylum so this would be like the mid 1700s and like i said earlier the earliest use of the asylum was to separate dangerous the dangerously mental ill from society not to treat cure or care for so it was to like keep people away from um other people because again it was a domestic problem unless you were dangerous makes sense but not really Things like hydrotherapy, using water or bathing as a cure, and shock therapy, with, um, which I'm going to talk about that in a minute, really were sad. common. Um, so super early treatments, like those used by Benjamin Rush, who people called the father of modern psychiatry, included humoral treatment. Um, this was originally because the mentally ill were thought to be possessed, and that, but then was used to restore balance. So you did, do you guys remember like the four humors from yeah. like, like Dr. Time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right now I don't. What are those? It's like black bile, yellow bile. I don't know the other. Blood is one. Yellow bile. Yeah, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and then one other. I think it's mucus. Mm-hmm. And those are the four biles. And people were like, if you keep them in balance, you'll be healthy. Wait, what's the yellow bile and black bile? I don't know. One is in your stomach, right? And one is in your head, maybe. I have no clue, but they were saying, like, you need to keep these, like, four um, humors in balance in order to remain healthy, so if you're sick, you need to, like, rebalance them, and that's why bleeding was, like, a medicine. Oh, like, why they, like, use leeches and stuff? Exactly. But, like, if you have, so, like, instead of, like, giving you more blood, some, do they ever give people more blood, or do they just bleed people? They just bleed people. Because, like, that, that makes much sense, if you're saying imbalance... I mean, like, obviously the whole thing doesn't make sense, but, like, if they say they want to keep people in balance, they just take things away, shouldn't they put things in sometimes? I think by unbalance, they think they meant you lost some, so they're trying to, like, rebalance everything. Oh, so they're, like, trying, so, like, you lost, let's say you lost, like, blood, they, like, drive mucus up your nose, they, like, put, like, the brain yellow stuff up your ears or whatever, and... <laughs> I, I don't know, I think bleeding was the most common form. Um, so yeah, 
I don't know if there was any in the brain. You should not be quoting me on that. Okay. Yeah. I'm so, trying so hard not to make a dirty joke right now. Oh my god, Nick. Okay, so this is why things like bleeding, like we just talked about, and purging in order to keep the body's humor and, and balance. And um, again, this was not only used for mental health, but physical illnesses as well. So yeah, you, I was talking about how mental illness and physical illness were treated the same. That's why they were both treated with um, humoral treatments. Another similar treatment was carried out by Henry Cotton, who believed that mental illness was a result of rot in the body. So not humors, but rot. And so he would subsequently pull out rotting teeth to cure illness. But when that didn't work, which he assumed was because there was still, he would, there was still contaminated saliva in the body, he would remove the tonsils as well. So he thought the rot was like in your mouth. And so he would remove teeth and tonsils. And he was eventually removing body any body part he thought could carry infection, which included stomachs, small intestines, appendixes, Yay! gallbladders, Man, thyroid glands, and colons. Like, You're still sick? I'll take out your intestines. Not, He's I, like, what do you mean you still I, have a fever? I Goodbye, gallbladder. Even, I wouldn't even want to meet this guy. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so Henry Cotton, maybe right idea, wrong track. No, I don't think he had the right idea. I don't think he had the right idea. Maybe Sounds wrong like track, wrong train. Wrong. I feel like you're not being We don't know where, where Henry Cotton was going with this. I think it's the Somewhere cray cray. So, unsurprisingly... Um, was he drinking the Coca-Cola? <laughs> none of these worked, and his treatments had a very high mortality rate. I wonder why. And then yet another similar treatment was carried out by Julius Wagner Hureg. I don't know Where how to ask me. people get these ideas? Like, what sparks in the brain? Like, are people sick? Take out Yeah, water. they're probably just high on cocaine because that's what they use as pain medication. <laughs> it's and the 1700s. Have... I feel like everyone was drunk, too. Yeah, they're like, I'll have beer for dinner with a side of cocaine. <laughs> and then I'll go do my surgery with my rusty needles that I haven't cleaned since I got them. Oh is no, this, he's dead again. Is this too far back in time, but didn't they only drink beer back then because the water was too contaminated? Yeah. That was Europe pre-enlightenment. Okay. Um. So yeah, Julius Wagner Hureg, who believed that high fevers could cure schizophrenia. What? So he would inject people with malaria. <laughs> what? And even won a Nobel Prize for this method. No. Did it work? And this was actually one of the first treatments used, ever used in psychiatric hospitals, was infecting people with malaria Did as a way to though? cure schizophrenia. No, it didn't work, Kate. Well, then how why do you get knowing it? Because like, they're like, oh my god, you're a genius. And like, they were like having malaria in addition to schizophrenia, so maybe they were like too sick to like talk about their visions. I don't know. They were like, poor people. I'm speculating here. This is all speculation. I speculate that... Uh, all of the people were drinking Coca-Cola and beer. Thank you, Mick. All right, so now we're going to talk about shock therapy. Um, so have y'all ever heard of shock therapy? Yeah, yes. when you get shocked, you, you feel better. Okay, so in case you don't know what shock therapy is, as Mick maybe might not, um, shock therapy is basically where seizures without muscular convulsions are induced in the brain in a variety of ways. Um, to provide relief from mental disorders. So yeah, you're like, you're shocked and you feel better. Um, you, did, it work? did it work? I don't think so, but shock therapy is actually still used today in like a lesser form. So maybe sometimes. I'm not sure it, yeah, we'll go with that. 
Um, and the most common disorders that are treated with shock therapy are schizophrenia and depression. So the first shock therapy I'm going to talk about is insulin shock therapy. Um, I'm sure y'all think most commonly of ECT, but I can talk about that in a minute. But um, electrical shock therapy is not the only version of shock therapy there is. Then why is it called shock therapy? Because you're inducing like seizures in the brain, just like a shock, even if it's not electrical. Um, so insulin shock therapy was brought to the U.S. by Kate, guess the nationality? Germans. By a German neurologist who is called Manfred Sackel and involved large doses of insulin being injected. Oh, so they can get insulin for these wacko ideas and not for people with diabetes. <laughs> Hot take there. Um, and involved large doses of insulin being injected into a person to induce a coma. The patient was... Sounds like a really high-tech um medical endeavor yeah the patient was then removed from the coma and thought to be cured so as soon as so they like were put into a coma taken out of the coma and they're like yeah you're you're cured um and the process was repeated daily for several months daily a daily coma for several months where are they getting all this insulin wait does it work it caused amnesia oh but it was popular because it had a high quote-unquote success rate did it really, did it or did work? they just forget everything? Or? I think I think they forgot their depression and schizophrenia, but the, or it like rewired their brain maybe, so they like forgot everything but didn't have schizophrenia. Well, anymore. at least it worked, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we're gonna call this a success to me. <laughs> but what's better, amnesia or schizophrenia and depression? I don't. I'd say. Maybe. I'd say that depends. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not gonna say it's worth it. Like, I, I'd say it, if you have, like, really bad, like, hard, hard to, like, hard to, like, live, like, schizophrenia or depression, I'd say it might be worth it. So you're going to fall into the camp with the people who used insulin, insulin shock therapy then, or its supporters. Um, and it was primarily used to treat schizophrenia, and this is because people thought schizophrenia was caused by high blood sugar in the brain. So in addition to insulin shock therapy, patients might have received sugary tea as a treatment. That's such a fun chain. They're like, here, eat this cookie. And you're like, thanks. Science. Um, another treatment that worked the same way was metrazole shock therapy. Um, this caused convulsions that could kill the patient. Oh my. So this was also in dose, like um, giving a large dose of metrazole. But to induce it, a coma, but this had, instead of amnesia, it just, like, killed people. But did it work? She called death working. Okay. I, I, anyway, electroconvulsive shock therapy is probably the most commonly thought of type of shock therapy. This is the one with electricity. The one, the one that I thought was the only one that existed until now. Exactly. It's the one that a lot of people think is the only one that exists. It's called ECT for short, electroconvulsive shock therapy. So ECT was less physically dangerous than the other forms of shock therapy, but it still caused amnesia and could actually increase suicidal tendencies. But suicidal tendencies in depression or like other other diseases? Just in general. In general? So even if you had like something completely different, like anxiety or something? Yeah. I'm not sure it was like very often used to treat anxiety though. What was it often used to treat? Um, all of these were most often used to treat schizophrenia and depression. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it caused amnesia and it, and it would increase suicidal tendencies. 
So how ECT worked was typically 70 to 120 volts were administered externally to the patient's head, and this would result in an 800 milliampermeters of current actually running through the person's head. Um, it was considered a miracle cure because patients could show improvements after only a few sessions, and it was much safer. It was a much safer alternative to like insulin shock therapy and metrazole shock therapy. It's um, safer than insulin, but yeah, it was safer than those. But, but it still caused confusion and temporary amnesia, and it was actually used with informed consent, so people knew they were getting shock therapy before they got it. Wait, wait, you didn't know you got insulin therapy, insulin shock therapy, and uh, what's the other one? You might have, but those were older treatments, so consent was less of a thing. And it was used to treat major depressive disorder, mania, catonia, and etc. It's cool to see how diseases get, like, slowly, uh, I'm, like, not, what, that was not the best way to phrase it, how, like, treatments get, like, slowly and slowly better. Like, yeah. this shock therapy is not good, but this definitely seems better than metrotomic malalala <laughs> shock therapy. Shock therapy still used sometimes. I actually got shock therapy for my mig- migraines when I was younger. Not sure if y'all knew that. I used it too, that little shock thing. Yeah. yeah. That's, that technic- that's technically shock therapy. The TENS unit? Yeah. That worked. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, like when... It's like a very mild form of shock therapy, though. Wowie. Wowie. Okay. Um, and all lobotomies, which we mentioned earlier in the episode, just in a tangent about um, the Kennedy girl. Um, again, most of y'all probably have some tangential idea of what a lobotomy is. Do you guys know what a lobotomy is? Yeah, you know, like when like the doctor like cuts open your head and looks at your brain. It's like when they remove a part of your brain that yeah. they believe is they causing. Like, do they go do it through your eye, right? I, they might. They like. I, I think they start, like, they used to, like, just drill through your head, but then they started doing it through your eye socket, I think. And then they would, like, scoot, like, scramble a little part of your brain, hope they got the right part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Talpin and Hobbes' lobotomies were, like, used as a joke a lot. Yeah, they're used as a joke a lot, even in modern times. Um, yeah, but they were a real thing and they were scary. Yeah. Even if you joke about it, I'm sure you know that. Um, so lobotomy is a form of psychosurgery. It was widely practiced despite it being common knowledge that they were extremely dangerous. Um, and it was often performed with the acknowledgement that it was performed at the expense of the person's personality and intelligence. So they were curing this mental disorder, but the cost was the person would not be themselves anymore and they wouldn't be able to like be the same like high-functioning member of society that they had wouldn't agree to that. I would not agree to that. It was usually the person didn't agree to it, their family did. But why? Because they... Oh, little Susie, she sees a people in the shadows sometimes, but we'd rather her not say a thing than say the scary thing. The plan was to... Because it worked sometimes, Uh, and they were also... This person's going to remain institutionalized either way. So it wasn't going to be their problem. No, Mick, we wouldn't make you get a lobotomy. I don't. Why would we make you get a lobotomy, Mick? Uh, no, like it's terrifying. <laughs> the 1800s. No, Mick, we're gonna drive you right to the nearest asylum, and we're gonna say, "Give this boy a lobotomy." We're gonna watch them, <laughs> and they do it too. We're gonna watch them stick a corkscrew it's definitely your legal. and scramble your brain, and we're gonna be like, "Yes, that's what we want." 
You want a little brother with scrambled brains. So, so here's the messed up thing. Uh, lobotomies were designed with the overcrowding of hospitals in mind. Basically, they wanted patients out of the institution as quickly as possible, and lobotomies were supposedly very optimistic. So it was like this rush procedure that they designed as like a miracle cure, and they're like, we need to get people out of the asylums. So and it was kind of, they didn't care that much about the patients? I wouldn't say they didn't care, but it was like meant to be like quick. Instead was, of, like, these drawn-out treatments, like shock yeah, therapy. I feel like I'd be, like, the worst possible, like, lobotomy doctor. Because I'd be, like, shaking so much. And I'd probably just, like, scramble their brains like I do with eggs every day. <laughs> okay, Vic. Maybe don't go into surgery at all. Okay, so lobotomies work basically with the idea that doctors could um, damage neural connections in the frontal cortex, which was thought to cause mental illness. Um, and if you don't know what a, a neural connection, the frontal cortex, etc., is, listen to episode one and two for more detail on those. I'm not going to get into it. Um, however, this damage didn't stop mental illness and could instead erase memories or even change the patient's personality, like I said earlier. So if you'll remember the, the case study of Phineas Gage in the metal pole, you can survive your brain being damaged, but you're going to lose a part of like yourself, that the, that part of the brain controls. Can you skate in the middle pole? Clearly someone doesn't listen to my podcast, Nick. Sorry. That's a case study for localization. You should listen to it. Um, many people who received lobotomies were permanently incapacitated. Um, so yeah, like lobotomies had a low success rate, I think. And they the, the risk was that you were not going to be yourself afterwards. Maybe the reason lobotomies... Lobotomy are used as a joke a lot just because the word can sound funny. Like, that is a good guess. I'm not sure why. We can go with that. Like phalan- phalanges? <laughs> Our mom loves the word phalanges. Yeah, like carpals and carpals and the first phalanges. Um, I used to test on that, so I, I, am, I am like a... I'm like a... <laughs> like... Expert? Yeah. What's that, what's that effect called? The Dunning-Kruger effect? I'll leave it at that. Um, and then You're the, the only one who understands that. Can you explain that? The Dun- can't you explain? The Dunning-Kruger effect is when you first learn something, you think you're an expert, and then the more you learn, you realize the less you know until you're like an actual expert. It's like a hill. So you start here, you're learning, you're learning, and you're like maybe like oh, tiny little bit into the knowledge. You're like, I know everything. I'm an expert. And then you learn more, you learn more, you learn more, you learn more. And eventually you get back up to the top again. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm probably not going to get better at bones because I just passed that test and immediately forgot about everything. And I don't want to know more. Okay. So lobotomy treatment was act- actually lasted all the way into the 1970s. That's how we get to the Kennedys. And it was brought into the U.S. in the mid-40s by Walter Freeman. Um, anything to add on lobotomies before we move on? Uh, I don't know. Fair enough. Kate? Um, they seem pretty bad. That they do. Alrighty. They do go through the eye, though, right? Like, that's the worst part for me. Like, imagine you just, like, see someone coming at you and they're like, I'm gonna stick this in your eye. Right, no, like, I want LASIK, but I don't want LASIK, you know? No, I'd rather wear contacts and have someone approach me with a laser. Like, keep your eyes open. 
Keep your eyes open. Well, no, you have to watch this because it's in your eye. They probably put you on sedative, right? No. Sedatives? Not for LASIK because you have to be awake and your eyes have to be open. It so, doesn't hurt, though. It doesn't hurt, but it's scary. There's just someone coming at you and you're like, I'm going to laser part of your eye off. Like, what? No, thank you. No, thanks. Um, I'll wear glasses. Um... Wait, are we sure to do it through the eye? Do they like they could? No, I'm definitely like not sure. I'm de- I'm like, Kate's sure. I'm like at least eighty-seven percent sure like, it was I through the like eye. Nose or the ear might work. No, better. make that's mummies. Mummies was through the nose. What, Ears would damage the ear canal. It was I through guess. the eye. But like, what do you mean, mummies was through the nose? They, they took the spoon up through when the they nose took and mummies for your brain. Up, they, no, it was like a heated hook. Yeah, and they would, like, scoop your brain out through your nose. Mummies? Well, yes, for yeah. mummies. From, like, Egypt. Yeah, like, but, like, when the mummies was dead? Or when yeah, they... after they were yeah. dead, obviously. Why did they scramble up the brain? So, so they, they can, can preserve it. it. No, they, uh, did, they threw it away. Yeah, they, but they didn't think it was a body. Oh, true, true. It was part of the preservation process. Oh, wait. So did like, you not have it in Egypt phase, Nick? Wow, Nick. That's embarrassing. Phase. Everyone has a dinosaur phase. She's going to tell us you didn't have a Greek mythology phase. I have a Greek mythology <laughs> phase. He's reading Percy Jackson right now, Ava. As you should, King. We're ready to move on to psychiatric drugs. Yay! Yay. Drugs. All of us have so much experience doing drugs. Um... Except for Mouse. Mouse has never done drugs. Mouse doesn't know what the word drugs means. But only because she doesn't speak English. Hey, Mouse, do you know what a drug is? There's no response from the subject of our question. She has continued licking her paws. Um, anyway, so once again, I'm... I don't know. I started with once again. Okay, so uh, the idea of using medication to treat mental illness is not a new or novel concept. The only thing that's new or novel in, like, the modern era is the sort of drugs that are used. Um, So in the olden days, or the times we were talking about, when we've been talking about treatments, you know, like the early 1800s, etc., etc., the drugs that were used to treat mental illness were, like, morphine or opium. I have no clue what those are. Like, the, like from Hunger Games? Like the morphine addicts from Hunger Games or, like, the opium dens from Dorian Gray. Right. I just started reading Hunger Games. What did you actually? Yeah. That's cool, bro. Um, so morphine and opium are both opiates, I think. Um, they both are like painkillers, but like strong and addictive painkillers, I think, is the is the way to describe that. Um, so the purpose is that they were used for morphine and opium were to sedate and make the overcrowded asylums manageable. So we talked about asylum overcrowding earlier. So these were, um, we, we also talked about restraints. These were like medical restraints, if that makes sense. They were used yeah. to like calm down. I'm, I'm doing that in quotations. You can't see that, obviously. But, you know, like sedate patients. No, I'm using the word patients lightly, obviously. Uh, yeah. That seems pretty bad, but not as bad as uh, like being chained down to uh, like being wearing a straight jacket or like being trapped in the bathtub yeah i think kate and mick talked about this earlier where they'd rather be heavily drugged on morphine and opium than tied down as a purpose of restraining i'll keep that in mind um if the occasion ever arises 
where I need to restrain these two. I'd probably rather be restrained than be on, like, cocaine or something. Well, this isn't cocaine. It's opium. What would you ever do, Ava? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Well, it's like, I actually can't decide now because it's like, would you rather be in your right mind or would you rather, like, know what's going on? Exactly. That's actually a hard question now that I really think about it more. Because I'm like, oh, I'd rather be drugged than tied to a bathtub. But, like, now I just don't know. Well, if you're tied to a bathtub, like, if you're drugged, you're, like, numb or you're right. Well, like, I feel like maybe you need, there's, like, if if you could, like, interchange between the two, like, sometimes you could be on a, in, tied to a bathtub, other times you could be drugged. I definitely, like, take breaks. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they would let you take breaks, Mick. Do not worry. No, I mean take breaks from being tied to the bathtub to be drugged and then take breaks from being drugged to go back. To well, tied. you know, if you ever go to an eighteen hundreds asylum, make sure to tell them your preferred treatment model, okay? Okay. Um, alright. So eventually treatments became more humane and medical treatments more effective, and asylums largely closed in favor of smaller community centers and therapy. So instead of having this large statewide center that everyone in the state was sent to, um, it was there were smaller like community centers, you know, like how every city now has like a, a mental hospital or things like that, or a, mm-hmm. a mental facility institution. And therapy, instead of being institutionalized as well, took favor. Um, and then hypnosis was another old treatment. Did it work? Um, we're actually talking about hypnosis more in episode seven, which is on altered states of consciousness. Um, so for a more detailed account of what that is, you can well, listen like, to that. Can you give me a less detailed account because I'm probably not gonna watch it. It was it was mostly <laughs> thanks, Mick. It was mostly used by Freud, or it was popularized by Freud, and it was used as like a diagnostic and treatment tool by some of the early pioneers of psychology. So you know to get people admit to like why they were acting the way they were um maybe this is where the concept of oedipus complex came from and also it's like a treatment form to like forget their schizophrenia or like hypnotize people into acting a different way you know like behavioral hypnosis yeah but if they act in a different way would they still feel like have like feel the same that they had before i think so i also don't think hypnosis is Works very so. effective So I'm not sure how effective, that's true, I'm not sure how effective hypnosis as a treatment tool for mental illness was. Um, I'm going to say, since we don't use it anymore, I'm going to go out all in here and say, probably not that effective. Um, Feel free to disagree, though. I'll agree with you, Ava. Thanks, Kate. I was going to disagree with you, though. I was going to disagree with you just because I don't like you, but, like, uh, Graph. Oh, never mind. Uh, but I'm gonna agree with you because that's actually right. Yeah. It's a dilemma a lot of people face, I think, when dealing with me. <laughs> um, and hypnosis is actually still used as a treatment, so I misspoke earlier, for a few things, but mainly sleep disorders, nicotine addiction, and depression. So you might be hypnotized into sleeping, maybe hypnotized into getting over an addiction or hypnotized into not being depressed anymore. I'm not sure I personally would ever seek hypnosis as a treatment option for any of those things. But maybe sleep, but that's maybe about sleep. It. But I also would like to be hypnotized just to see what it's like. 
So isn't that like this like thing? Do you have to pay you a watch lot? those videos to hypnotize yourself? I have watched those videos, and you know what? I was not hypnotized. No, but some of them ridiculous. Like, you know those videos where you like look at the like like the spinning wheel or something. Yeah, and, then, and people and, talk. And then you and then you look up and like everything you see is moving. Those actually work a little bit, like not not like crazy. <laughs> well, that's not hypnosis. Hypnos- yeah, one bro. time, it's one just... time there was this video I watched when I was four or something. Not four. You did not have iPad access at four when I was young, and I I it was like so it, I was with my friend Redacted, and uh so we were watching get all Redacted. He's <laughs> my favorite friend. All of my friends have the same name, Randley. Uh, we were watching... No, you have Cucumber and Redacted. Yeah. Well, anyways... Anyways, back to the uh, story. I was, wa- I was, like, watching YouTube. We were, like, seven or something. We were pretty young. And then there, we watched this video, and it was, like, if you, if you stare at the center of the screen for, like, ten minutes or whatever, it gets the person uh, profit from watch time. Uh, you'll forget your name or whatever. So then my my friend Redacted was too scared to forget his name, so he looked away, and I was like, it's probably fake. I'll look at it. And I looked at it for, like, the whole ten minutes, and then uh, I, I didn't forget my name. Thrilling tale, Mick. <laughs> Thank you for telling it. Um. Okay, we're moving on. Oops. We are moving on to art therapy now. Art. 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 It was used somewhat in early asylums, and it rose to popularity or began in the 1940s. And it was said that it would provide doctors with an insight into the patient's condition and mental state. And art therapy is actually still offered today, along with other cool forms of therapy like music therapy and stuff like that. What is art therapy? It's like where you draw stuff and they like look at the pictures of what you drew. Oh, I've seen like a YouTube video like that where it's like somebody, it's somebody that's get, been given art therapy or something and it's like, I think it's either schizophrenia or dementia or something and somebody with like slowly worsening of that symptom and you see and they draw self-portrait. I think it was like an actual artist. Oh, so the first... Person? No, was it Picasso? It wasn't. Or was it Van Gogh? It was no, Van Gogh. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a. Fa- it wasn't like a really famous artist. It was like, it was like a more modern artist. And then, so the first ones before, like when it, what when whatever their uh illness was, wasn't was like wasn't that major and they hadn't gone like it hadn't become really bad yet. Uh, they looked like normal self portraits, but you could like see as uh time went on, they got like really weird and like. Like, the proportions became really weird, and the person looked, like, disturbing and stuff. Yeah, I think I've actually seen that series. It's pretty cool. Yeah, me too. Um, I was also going to say art therapy is, if you've seen the movie Parasite, it won a lot of awards last year. Um, the sister pretends to be an art therapist in order to gain entry into the home. So Yeah, isn't, didn't she say, like, the little boy that's, like, drawing weird drawings? Yeah. Is, like, a psychopath or something, and then she got in. Well, she said he had, like, suffered a traumatic event. So, yeah, that is a, that's an example of a depiction of art therapy in the media. Um, Okay, so now we're going to talk about Dorothea Dix, just a little biography about her. Um, She was one of the most recognizable public figures in the mental hospital reform movement, specifically the care that should be provided people even if they could not be afforded. So this goes into the whole moral treatment thing we were talking about earlier. 
Um, and as you all remember, she's the person who's like petitioning for a Kirkbride asylum in every state. Mm-hmm. Um, so she started out as a New England school teacher. She actually wrote a book. It was called Conversations on Common Things or A Guide to Knowledge with Questions. And it was the book was about facts for school teachers that was reprinted uh, 60 times. So she was a very popular author before she became this activist for mental health reform. But she became ill several times, and so she was forced to stop teaching. And in this, like, forced retirement, she started to care more about the the mental health reform movement. During one of her illnesses, her doctor recommended that she spend some time in Europe. Um, But while she was in Europe, she met some asylum reformers and became interested in their work, and eventually she took it back to the U.S. with her. So this was how the asylum reform movement came to the U.S. It was through Dorothea Dix. So upon returning to the U.S., she toured several mental asylums and reported some of her findings to several politicians. But unfortunately, the politicians did not really agree with her work, even though but she persisted anyway. So she like presented it to all the people in charge and they sort of decided not to do anything about it. They're like, we don't care. Um, yeah, so that happened. Uh, speaking of famous people, well, this person isn't that famous, but I heard this story. It's pretty famous. No, not the person, not, not, not Dorothy Dix or whatever the person I'm talking about, going to talk about right now. Uh, so I think there's like this person, like a few, a while ago, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about, uh, like woman getting into asylums just because like, uh, like marital problems or something like that. Uh, well, there's this like story of somebody, I don't remember it that well, but like somebody got an asylum and they were like perfectly mentally stable. And it, it was just, like, and this was, like, old, old asylums, like, back at the beginning of the video with, like, the uh, cushioned rooms and uh, baths with uh, being tied into baths or whatever. Anyway, so uh, I think she, like, ex- I think she, like, kind of, like, took it to court or something. She got out and took it to court of, like, the, like, what they were hiding from pu- the public like, about, like, how, like, cool they were to the, uh, patients, and, like, uh, I think she, like, took down the mental asylum. Was that American Horror Story Season 2? That did happen in American Horror Story Season 2. It might have been based on this story that Mick just told us, though. Yeah, I don't watch American Horror Story, so I probably will yeah, so Dorothy Dix eventually established asylums in New Jersey, North Carolina, and Illinois. And after that, she went from state to state to talk about the plight of mentally ill people and the benefit of the Kirkbride plan. So as we mentioned earlier, she was a huge proponent of the Kirkbride plan and um, instrumental in getting it established. Um, and eventually, every state had a version of the Kirkbride Mental Asylum funded by tax dollars. And she's personally responsible for founding the or, ex- or expanding um, the th- of 30 different mental hospitals. So she worked really, really hard to get all of these implemented, which is pretty cool. I think think the thing I just talked about earlier was a TED Talk. Yeah, it might have been. That would make sense, because I watched a lot of TED Talks. Please please tell me that I'm not alone. No, I also watched TED Talks, don't worry, Mick. I think they're fascinating. Everyone watches TED Talks. Sometimes we just need a good TED Talk. Mm So, Dorothea Dix's work spread over many states and even as far as Constantinople, which is modern-day what? Turkey. Right no. Uh, I forgot what it's called. It's, uh... 
it's they might be giant sun. Oh, it's they might be. Oh, I thought you said what is it called now? Yeah, what's it called today? Constantinople. What what is it called? I forget it. It is in Turkey. I know it's in Turkey. It's like Afghanistan. It's Istanbul. Afghanistan. Istanbul. Yeah. I can't sing again this whole time. Oh my god. I am very smart. Yeah. And the arrival of asylums in the U.S. was largely her doing, like we said earlier. And fun fact, she was a superintendent of, of army nurses in the Union for the Civil War. So many people said she set her standards for nurses too high, but her work was instrumental in advancing the role of nurses both in the war and the medical field as general. And she was known for treating both Union and Confederate soldiers. So she um, was instrumental in a lot of different areas, not just um, mental illness reform. And she did a lot of work across many different fields. So that is it for Dorothea Dix. Now we're going to talk about Bedlam Asylum, which I mentioned earlier, it was one of these public hospitals. One of the early ones? Yeah, and it is. Um, it has a terrible reputation. You'll soon find out why. And Bedlam is actually not its official name. Its real name is Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London, and it's a not very affectionate nickname. And Bedlam has actually become synonymous with chaos and uproar, and it was der- that like connotation slash meaning actually came from the nickname for this hospital. Mm-hmm. So the reason we say Bedlam as like chaos is because of this hospital. So that should tell you a little bit about it. Um, it became a, syn- a synonym, like I was saying, due to the theatric interest in the hospital during the Jacobian era, where several plays depicted the chaos that ensued. So um, the like media's interest in asylum started early and it started almost with the Bedlam Hospital, and it was depicted in plays as, like, a chaotic place. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So the hospital often had a reputation of scandal and abuse. So the first scandal in the hospital was in 1403, which is when St. Andrews was founded, I believe, when the hospital treasurer, Peter Tavener, was found guilty of embezzlement and theft. So that was just the first scandal of many that this I hospital... Like embezzling stuff. You like embezzling stuff? Yeah. Do you want to elaborate? I don't know what embezzling means, but I assume I like it because I like a lot of stuff. Um, it's illegal. Yeah. Uh, Trump got impeached for it, I think, or he got in trouble for it. Trump never got impeached, right? He did. He did. He did. Although that oh, that yeah. was actually for the January sixth riots. I think a he lot of his it. he, he got, got sued for embezzlement. He, I know Trump did embezzlement. He got impeached, but he didn't get removed. Yeah. Embezzlement is basically like taking money from your business that's not part of your paycheck. Oh, so like, so like, like stealing from a company you work so at. So like, let's say, like in a small scale example, if you're a cashier, you take all the money from the thing, the box. Yeah, exactly. So if a cashier takes money from the cash register, that's embezzlement. Um, so Bedlam has inspired numerous horror literature and shows. It started as a normal hospital, so like a physical illness hospital, but it switched to the care of mentally ill people sometime around 1377. Um, And by 1403, um, mentally ill patients outnumbered those with physical ailments. Um, As for the medieval period of the hospital, because it's been around since the medieval period, um, little is known about the care of patients other than restraints such as manacles and isolation were likely used. So this was like the restraining period where mental illness was mostly handled at home and only dangerous people were in mental hospitals. 
The hospital was mainly for the poor who had no family or support system, and it was run with a regime of punishment and religious devotion. Yikes. And then in 1346, the hospital was failing, so the city of London agreed to take it over. So it had been sort of like a private thing, but then it became like this city hospital that they were in charge of. And they believed that the hospital had a future due to its specialization in quote-unquote madness, though many historians agree that madness included those with things like learning disabilities and dementia. No. I mean, they would have locked me up. Um, probably not, to be honest. Why? It's just like, I feel like a lot of people back then don't know how to read, right? Yeah. I feel like... That is true. Plus, you're a woman. I would have been locked up anyway. (laughs) Oh, wait, no, it wouldn't have worked out because they wouldn't have taught me. I wouldn't have had to gone to school. Yeah, maybe ADHD, but I feel like you're not that. I have like, the inattentive kind, so it's not as noticeable. Exactly. So, personally, I don't think they would have thrown you in bedlam. But I sure hope them. not. Well, you don't live in the 1800s. So. Well, true. Bedlam has about 29 rooms for servants and the patients. And the hospital was open to patients to roam as they pleased, unless they were deemed dangerous and thus restrained. So they could go wherever they wanted unless they were tied up, basically. That's cool. That's how life usually works. Sure. <laughs> um, go where you want to unless that. you're tied to a chair. I'm not paying attention at all. I'm just like, blankly, that's cool. Okay, Mick. Thanks for admitting you're not paying attention. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to find her in a blanket. That's so sweet. Okay, so the hospital was built over a sewer, but the sewer was sometimes blocked, so that made, like, waste flood into the entrance of the that building. That was really fun. It was super hygienic. This was a hospital? This was a hospital? Wait, well, yeah. Um, and in the early days of the hospital, there were records of patients being starved. So to start, the hospital didn't have a lot of money, so its keeper relied on gifts for the basic necessities. So if not enough people donated, then they just, like, didn't feed the patients. Wow. Yeah. So patients were fed only twice a day, and even then on a lowering diet. And a lowering diet is, like, an intentionally reduced diet, and those at Bedlam likely consisted of bread, oatmeal, meat, butter, cheese, and beer. That's a pretty big meal, though. Well, like, small amounts of it twice a day. Well, what if the patient had, like... Some sort like of one like, slice of salami, no, like, a piece of toast. Yeah, but probably like not everything at every meal, you know. Oh. Maybe uh, like a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast and like a tiny bowl. What if a patient had like a? Uh, what if a patient had like some sort of like eating disorder where like they needed to eat more? I don't. I I'm not gonna try to guess what type of disorder that would be because I have no clue. I'm not sure that sort of thing was treated back in the medieval times. Like, I'm sure it existed, but I'm not sure it was, like, treated, you know? Yeah, especially not at a hospital like this one. Yeah. Um, and so they likely received um, meat and dairy products separately, like, so they wouldn't get both with every meal. So, like, if they got meat, they wouldn't get butter and cheese. And they also did not have any fruits or vegetables in their meals, like, at all. So that is not good for you. You need to have fruits and veggies. Eat your tomatoes because that kind of is both. Yeah. Um, and this sort of meal was likely done due to the humoral beliefs of the day, which we talked about earlier at depth, um, because the people in charge might have thought this reduced diet would help rebalance the humors and aid in curing the patient. 
1634, the hospital saw a switch from the medieval style to the modern organization. And that would be modern for the time. So the day-to-day old-style keeper was replaced with a three-tiered program consisting of non-resident physician, a visiting surgeon, and an apothecary. So instead of having one person in charge of all the patient's health, they now had three people in charge. Um, This model was adapted from the Royal Hospitals. So this three-tiered program had been used previously. It was just now adapted to the public hospital. Um, Most of the new appointees were were well-qualified, and the vast majority of them had graduated from Oxbridge. Um, Oxbridge. Oxbridge. I think that's a college. So yeah, the the new people they had were well qualified, but there was still a fair amount of nepotism at the hospital, including the Monroe family dynasty. So even though a lot of the physicians were qualified, there was also a lot of people who weren't qualified and were just allowed to work there due to nepotism. Because their dad and moms were like uh, doctors or whatever. Yeah. And Bendlam allowed visitors, um, which is weird for a mental hospital. So not only the family and friends of patients who were expected to bring food and other essentials, but public people who just had no connection to any of the patients were allowed to just wander in. It's like, hey, here for brunch. Hi, guys. Yeah, so Bendlam being open to the public um, then put on like this show of madness, often consisting, considered to be one of the more scandalous features of the hospital. So people could go in and just be like, I want to go see, like, the mentally ill people and just, like, go like watch them. Yeah, like a zoo. Yeah, that kind of seems psychotic. Yeah. And Maybe it is. Those guys should go to the mental hospital. Like, there was not much else in, in terms of entertainment. Mm, people used to go watch public executions. Exactly. So, yeah, so it, it speculated that the visitors were allowed as early as 1598 as a way of raising money for the hospital. Although the first documented case of visitors is 1610, where a man paid 10 shillings to walk around and see the quote-unquote mad. Um, Visiting on Sundays was banned in 1657, so the peak visiting times were holidays like Christmas or Easter, because Sundays were the only days they had off other than holidays from work. Um, Some extreme estimates put the annual number of visitors around uh, 96,000. And the keepers of the hospital, card governors, actively sought out rich visitors as potential donors to the hospitals. So, like, when rich people came to visit, they're like, hey, do you want to donate? Do you want to give us money? Um, And then in 1770, um, about 200 years after the, the first visitors were speculated to come, public access was rescinded and all visitors needed a pass from the governor. And although the visitors were subjected to the patients to taunting and even assault, and even assault. Once the public was banned, the staff was allowed to operate without so much public visibility. Some estimated that the abuse, that the worst abuses occurred. So even though like the visitors sort of abused the pa- the patients and would like mock them and tease them and everything, once there weren't the public visitors to like keep an eye on the staff, the staff could just sort of do what they wanted. That's bad. Mm-hmm. What the, the staff do? Abuse. Uh, so, like, when the visitors came, they, like, made sure not to, like, torture the, uh, the people. Exactly. And even today, Bedlam has an iffy reputation, and some people still die there, which has led to a few court cases, and the most recent court case against Bedlam Hospital was, wait, guess the year. 
2014. Did you read the computer screen? No, I did not. It was that 2014. Was random guess. That was the Wait, most recent. I can't read that far. My glass prescription. Yeah, Bible my glasses prescription. Like, this is the Liars Alive. It still exists. It still exists. Yeah. Is it? Does it still? It, has it become like a better place? I would assume bad? so. But um, yeah, there are still been court cases even as recently as 2014. So, it still has like not a great reputation. Well, if I but um, ever become mentally ill, I definitely don't want to go there. Well, luckily you don't live in London, Mick. Okay. We're going on to asylums in the media, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this episode. Um, Mick asked about it. I forget exactly what he asked, um, because that was several hours ago. Um, so this section will be super brief because there isn't actually a lot of information out there about, like, not a ton of people have done, like, in-depth studies as to the perception of asylums in the media and, like, as a horror trope. Um, but asylums are obviously very stigmatized in media and they're still, and like I said, they're a super common horror trope. So we've been talking about American Horror Story. There's um, Asylums and Pretty Little Liars. There's the Bedlam Asylum, which has been used in multiple different works of media and literature. There's Girl Interrupted, which also depicts mental institutions unfavorably, and et cetera. There's just like so many examples of that. Can y'all think of any examples other than the ones I listed? Ghost Adventurers. Ghost Adventures. Like it can be, this is just a general example. It can kind of be like a comedic effect. Like somebody like, like suddenly, like at the end of like a, I don't know, like a movie or something, or a TV show episode, somebody will like wake up in a uh, in a asylum, and it was like all, it's kind of like an all all a dream ending, but like all a, I don't know ending. Fair enough. Um, the most common perception of mental illness of a mental illness treatment facility is, um, and this is a quote a quote from a 2014 study is. They're depicted as unhygienic, dilapidated buildings where restraints, seclusion rooms, ECT, and psychotherapy are frequently used. So, like, these old, old treatments that we already talked about that are, like, antiquated and abusive, um, unhygienic rooms, like, dark, falling apart. You know, like, you, the abandoned asylums that you see, but, like, still mm-hmm. functional? Yeah. Um, and they were most commonly used in the past as a form of social commentary, including the aforementioned Wallenstone novel Maria which was a commentary on men, but still included an unfavorable pre- depiction of asylums. And even in Edgar Allan Poe, the system of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, um, which was a commentary on reformist Fever, but again, depicted asylums unfavorably. And they've also been used in more traditional horror novels in the way that they are most commonly used today, like in Quaker City or The Monks of Monk Hall by George Lippard, or um, which until Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the, mo- was the most sold novel in the U.S., and that also took an unfavorable view of asylums to tell, like, a horror story. What, like, what What do you do with an asylum in a horror story? Like, is it, like, is it just a set? Like, that? Yeah, it's just a set, and people have, like, made it haunted or they're abusive. Like, they're, like, ghosts of the, like, past patients or whatever. Yeah, they're, like, tortured patients by doctors who shouldn't be doctors, and we're using it as an excuse to, like, carry out human experiments and stuff like that. Okay. Just, like, not a very favorable view of mental illness for the treatment of mental illness. It's kind of hard to imagine anything really that creative involving mental asylums. 
like abandoned ones. I feel like you could probably do something more creative, one that's like inactive, but like I feel like like you can probably think of something, but like with an abandoned mental asylum as like I said, like the the only thing you can really make that movie about is about like the ghosts of the patients or whatever. Yeah, mental institutions are used, like, the, the functional ones are used in media, like yeah. Girl Interrupted or Maria. You know, we've talked about a few of yeah. them. But then again, like, Pretty Little Liars is, like, an abandoned one. American Horror Story is a functional one in the past. You know, like, just this trope, it, it takes yeah. many different angles. Wait, Pretty Little Liars? Isn't that, like, a Gossip Girls-like film? Or am I making that up? It's a lot of things. Um... <laughs> Actually, there's a video by Mike's Mike on YouTube that is going through the entire plot. Um, I highly recommend it. It was very entertaining. Um, so if you're interested in the plot of Pretty Little Liars, you should watch Mike's Mike video. What the heck is it about, though? Like, well, there it's about it's about a lot of things. Is it like Mean Girls? Because I feel like it's like Mean Girls. It's It's absolutely not not like Mean Girls. But moving on. Um, the asylum trope continued into movies once they emerged in the 1920s. So it was primarily in literature, but then it also went into movies once movies became a thing. And arguably the most famous horror movie that used an asylum trope is Halloween, which fe- which features Michael Myers, a serial killer who broke out of an asylum. So it's like this place where people are abused, but it also harbors like dangerous serial killers, basically is the trope. Yeah. 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 And additionally, after this trope became a popular horror trope, people started seeking out abandoned asylums and posting footage of the dilapidated buildings on YouTube and other platforms. Um, And this creates the misconception that they looked like this even in the past. So you were talking about like ghost adventurers looking at abandoned asylums. Mm -hmm. So like I went into an asylum at 3 a.m. challenge legit. Please like and sub and watch the whole hour long video so I get money. Exactly. So asylums have been used, like abandoned asylums, have created this idea that that's what asylums look like. So now I'm going to show Caden make a video of an abandoned asylum walkthrough, just to get an idea. The whole video? It's 15 minutes long? No, just a little bit of it. So you can hear that music right off the bat. And I will put the YouTube video on my Instagram as well as link it. This looks like some nice architecture so far. Oh, bathtub. How original. It's like London architecture with a few bathtubs. Yeah. It looks like an old building. It's It's like, like, ooh, a bathtub. Well, it's a little creepy, but abandoned buildings are just freaky. Okay, so that's the video. Do you guys have any commentary about it? It just looks like a regular abandoned building, but then they're, like, putting in, like, the bathtubs and, like, the things where they strap their heads down. So it just looks like a building, an abandoned building with the equipment. It just looks like what Do you think the appeal of that sort of video is that it's an abandoned building or that it's an abandoned asylum? I think that... Or probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both, yeah. I feel like, like, if it was an active asylum, then nobody would, like, watch it, but, like, it's a little more, like, freaky. Because it's, uh, it's like, yeah. abandoned and old. Like, I feel like... Like, I feel like you could go to, like, an abandoned and old anything and be freaky. I don't know. Anything abandoned makes it creepy. Right. Like, uh, But you think the idea of, like, abuse and haunted that, like, comes yeah, from the definitely. media adds to that aura. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay. 
So unfortunately, this trope has actually done a lot of harm. We've touched on this already. Um, but many Americans are actually nervous to seek help from mental health issues, in part because of the stigmatization propagated by media that negatively portrays mental institutions. So if you see stuff like that and you read in books about haunted asylums and you watch in TV shows about abusive asylums, are you going to want to check yourself into a mental institution for help? No. Exactly. So that is where the harm comes from. Luckily, therapy is not a harm horror movie trope is it not really it's it's, i think a lot of joke like a lot of jokes are made about therapy and media though like it's still very stigmatized like like what what do you like what types of jokes i don't know just like people not taking it seriously like oh i'm not crazy i don't need to go to a shrink you know so even though modern mental institutions are different from asylums um people associate the two and are still not very willing to check themselves into a mental institution because of this idea So that's it for um, asylums in the media. So our last little section is about advancements in mental health and the advent of telemedicine, just sort of stuff like that. It's sort of quick. Um, So most of the stuff I read about advancements in mental health were just people talking about how mental health issues were slowly losing their stigma. Like, would y'all say, like, it's more accepted to, like, seek treatment for mental health today than it would have been, like, 10 years ago? Yeah, all my friends are in therapy. They're like, I'm going to my therapist after school. I feel like... You have fun with that. I feel like, like, back then, if you want to, like, want to get therapy, you would be like, haha, you're mad, you freak, or whatever they say back then. And then, but now... Now, honestly... Uh, a lot of people think they're like edgy because they have to go to therapy or whatever. <laughs> like I'm so edgy. Like I'm Hashtag so edgy. Depression. depression. Broken. broken heart. <laughs> broken core. Okay. Um. Even still, one in five Americans reports having unmet needs in regard to mental health. But and this is an article published in 2020. So, in fact, even roughly one half of the counties in the U.S. don't have access to even one psychiatrist. And two-thirds of the people with mental illness don't seek treatment due to the stigma. So it's still very stigmatized, even if it's slowly losing the stigma. Um, so basically, when people used to say mental health issues, they meant severe mental health issues. But now mental health can refer to common conditions like depression and anxiety. So um, in the past, if you said someone was mentally ill, it meant like schizophrenia or like something like that. Or you would say, I'm mentally ill, and it would mean like anxiety. And stuff like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like, yeah, yeah. And people started being more open with their mental health and struggles with it. And there have even been new resources emerging to help people. So a lot of influencers um, especially stepped forward and started talking about their own struggles with, like, depression and anxiety and things like that. Like Billie Eilish. Sure, like Billie Eilish. I actually haven't seen her talk about that. I just know she does because I, uh, I... In seventh grade, and I'm adjacent to people in seventh grade that are obsessed with Billie Eilish. Alrighty, um, therapy and similar things are losing stigma, especially around younger groups like teenagers or seventh graders. Um, and this is largely due to new forms of media like TV shows or people sharing their struggles online. So my personal favorite mental health advocate is Jenny Larson, who wrote "Let's Pretend This Never Happened" and "Furiously Happy." She also runs a blog and a bookstore, and she's just funny. Um, But she talks about mental health a lot and her struggles with it and um, is actively trying to break the stigma, and she's doing a pretty good job of it, I would say. 
Um, but yeah, like I said, lots of influencers and celebrities have also talked about their struggles. However, um, most people think one of the largest uh, destigmatizing factors is the steadily mounting pile of clinical research. So yeah, because there's more research into mental illness, it's like becoming easier to talk about and more, and it's less of like, oh, this is like some weird like illness that we can't see or know anything about. It's like stuff we can know about and can treat and cure and stuff like that. Yeah. Also, the federal government, especially under Obama, have started putting up mental health on par with physical health, which is a huge step in breaking stigma. So in talking about mental health and treating mental health as if it's a physical illness is like sort of bringing people to the realization that it is an illness. It's like not something wrong with the person. It's an illness. So that is helping to break the stigma as well. Unfortunately, even with such federal laws, many people still don't have access to therapy or other forms of mental health care. Like I said, um, roughly half of the counties in the U.S. don't have access to even one psychiatrist. Mental health is um, still, there isn't a lot of access to it. This is sometimes due to cost and sometimes due to the stigma and sometimes due to insurance companies just not covering it, even if they're supposed to. So like some insurance companies are like, say they'll cover mental illness and they they don't like they don't cover therapy costs um therefore the best improvement that could be feasible that could feasibly come soon is securing mental health care for every person who wants and needs it so um one of the best ways to destigmatize mental health is to make sure everyone has access to care for it so yeah oh, yeah so mental health support is becoming increasingly available online which allows pe- therapy to become ex- more accessible as in cheaper and less quote unquote embarrassing. Like you don't have to go out of your way to go to therapy. You can maybe like pretend you're just like playing video games in your room, but you're like on a video chat with a therapist. Um, and there's lots of websites that allow you to access a therapist even anonymously. Um, telemedicine includes meditation apps, which I found surprising. I tried med- a meditation app before too, because uh, yeah, and uh, it it kind it kind of helps. It was just a little like I kind of prefer absolute silence, so like the the like raining sound effect or whatever. Yeah, and this allows people to do therapy from the comfort of their own home in little bits whenever they have a moment. Yeah. So some, and then there are some new drugs that have been used in place of opium and morphine, which we talked about earlier, like Thorazine, um, Risperdal, Zyrtec, and yeah, Zyrtec. There, yeah, there are just some new drugs that have been used in place of opium and morphine. Are they and, less dangerous and addictive? Yeah, they're way less dangerous and addictive, and these new drugs marked a change in mental health treatment. So the first effective antipsychotic emerged in 1955. And by 1994, the number of patients in asylums had dropped from 500,000 to 70,000. So, um, yeah, there are less patients being institutionalized, more drugs available that, like, better treat illnesses and are less for, like, sedation and more for, like, actual treatments. Um, Mental health care is becoming less stigmatized and more available. And that is basically where we're leaving off mental health. So, in conclusion... I'm glad that I don't live in the 1800s. Fair enough. I think that's a pretty good conclusion to come to after this episode. Yeah. 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 Okay, everyone say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening. Yo, what's poppin'? It's Mick, and I'm doing sites. So first we have Open...
Edu. Open as University of Pennsylvania. Okay, U Penn Edu and Wikipedia. Ed, no, it's Edu. That's how you pronounce it. Then we have Wikipedia.org. Then Talkspace.com blog. Seeker.com. The Timechamber.co.united Kingdom. Then WomanHistory.org. It's women's history. Oh, I thought. Oh, no, it's. There's an S. Oh, it's women's history. And then, uh, and CBI, uh, ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. And then we have historian, histor, historic, historic England. Oh, uh, .org .united Kingdom. Then we have Washington Post .commercial. Huh. Then, then Wishu Then YouTube .com commercial. Linked in the notes, that's what it says. Um, I'm gonna link that in the in the YouTube videos. Okay, and then NBC News. NBC News. Dot com, and um, then we have the the very last and the most special one of all, ibcess.org. I v c c s dot org. Okay. Well, I hope you liked the sites performed by your favorite person. Thank you for sharing, Mick. You did a fantastic job. Okay. Um, and thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.